Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. My name is Mason, I'm the host here, and today's episode is a special one. It's a friend of an alumni of the show. Ray Zahab was one on the show a few years ago, uh, or last year. Gosh, time just flies on this show, I'm telling you. We have so many episodes, so many people, but yeah, Ray is a longtime adventurer, uh, and his friend Valerie here, who we're interviewing, Valerie Ray and a guy named Kevin Valley all did a huge adventure last year that was crossing Baffin Island, a section of Baffin Island, this beautiful island, gorgeous mountain scenery and glaciers and coastal environments in the Canadian Arctic. And they crossed it on skis in winter. It was a seven-day expedition. The goal was to support Ray to complete this because Ray had just been diagnosed with cancer and was going through chemo treatments. So Valerie and Kevin were there to support and and also do this. And it was in support of Impossible to Possible Foundation, the nonprofit that brings youth on completely free expeditions to remote places around the world. Ray's Ray's doing God's work. He's taking young folks, and that organization, Impossible to Possible, is taking young folks on completely free expeditions to experience adventure. It's life-changing stuff. I mean, you know this as a listener of this show, how impactful, how life-changing adventure is. So the fact that they were raising support and getting out there and doing their own adventures is pretty incredible. So a no-brainer to talk to Valerie about this amazing idea. Valerie herself has been an athlete her whole life, cross-country skiing, rowing, and she eventually moved on past performance sports and did this amazing adventure in the Atacama Desert. She's guided in the Canadian Rockies, Siberia, Death Valley, all over the world. And she holds down a normal job working uh, at an airport. So it's, you know, a lot of these folks we talk to on the show have careers that are not just adventure-based. It's folks that that have normal lives. And in fact, I'm, I'm more impressed by the folks that can balance a normal life and responsibilities that a lot of us have while also doing adventure. That's who I find most inspiring. So people like Valerie to me are the biggest inspiration these days. So it was amazing having you, Valerie, on the show. So let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and dive in, hear this story, and get inspired. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, we're talking to Valerie Gagne. Valerie, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, thank you. This is this is a huge honor. This is a pleasure. I'm, I'm excited. This sounds like an incredible adventure. Folks heard kind of a summary of the adventure in the intro. One thing I want to ask before we really dive in is where are you coming from right now? And if that's not home, where is where is home for you? I'm at home right now. I'm in uh, Quebec City, so in Canada, and just hanging out at home this morning. How did you get involved with this crazy, crazy crew with Ray and Kevin? What What is the connection there? Because I don't know if you know this, we've had Ray on the podcast before. I did not know this. Yeah, um, yeah so he founded a nonprofit organization called Impossible to Possible. And in 2014, I was a youth ambassador on the Atacama expedition. And so I went with four other youth ambassadors to the Atacama desert. And we ran an average a marathon a day for seven days through that desert, all the while learning about the origins of the universe and about the stars and all that. And so that's how I met Ray. And then from that point on, I got introduced to the wonderful world of adventure, ultra running and expeditions and kept close contact with Ray. And we became really good friends uh, as one of my best friends now. And yeah, so then things kind of progressed from there. I started guiding some trips with his Topic One adventure company that we bring adults on expeditions through really remote parts of the world. And then on this uh, last expedition of his, his personal expedition, he asked me to uh, join him and, and Kevin on the expedition. So I was really honored to be part of that team. Before running across that desert, which I know that's actually how I learned about Ray. I don't know if you remember that documentary that came out, like running across the Sahara. Yeah. Years ago, like I watched that back in college and, and I remember thinking, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That's the first time I heard of Ray and what he did. And so you you did honestly something similar. What what was your background before that? Do you, surely you didn't jump right into that out of nowhere. What were you kind of, what were the building blocks up to that first adventure? 
Well, I come from a very adventurous family. Uh, we always went camping and hiking and all that. Not crazy expeditions, but just very active family. And so from a very young age, I was in multiple sports, cross-country skiing. I ran cross-country uh, in school. And I eventually went on to do cross-country skiing at a higher level, just regional races and I got into provincial races and nationals on the national junior team for cross-country skiing. I then retired from skiing. I got into university and then I got recruited onto a rowing program. It was called Road to Podium and basically taking transfer athletes from other sports and teaching them how to row. And the goal was to go to the 2016 Olympics uh, representing Canada. So basically, I got into that program just because I'm very tall and very strong. Those are important assets in rowing. I did that for two years, and then I realized I was actually done with high-performance sports. So I stopped all that and then got into that kind of weird little, not depression, but little down after you kind of lose your identity as an athlete, high-performance athlete. And so I was kind of, you know, looking for something to do. The whole 30-minute uh, day jog was just not going to cut it for me. And so, yeah, when, one day I was scrolling on Facebook and my old cross-country ski teammate, I saw a post of his on Facebook and he was running with four or five other people. They were all dressed the same and they were in an area that was definitely not Canada, Quebec. It was like, uh, I think they were in the, in Botswana. And so that caught my attention. I clicked on it and he was on an impossible to possible expedition, a uh, youth expedition. So that kind of, you know, I, I looked into it and I saw that they were running on average a marathon a day for like a week. And I said, they're crazy. There's no way that like I could do that. But anyways, I kind of stuck with me and I liked the I liked the Facebook page. And a few weeks later, actually, the I got on my Facebook feed post from I2P saying that they were launching the applications for the upcoming expedition to the Atacama Desert. I don't know why, but I decided to apply just because I think I needed a new challenge in my life. And I got uh, picked as a youth ambassador and then I think it was like four or five months later, I was in the Atacama Desert. And um, so I did have a background in endurance sports, but never anything close to running a marathon. I think the longest run I probably did was like a 15K trail run before starting to train for that expedition. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> so did you did you feel like, I don't know if I can do this, you know, when you first signed up or was it, I've got this, it's just a matter of, transitioning my ability to do one type of endurance sport to another? No, I really had no idea. Like I, I did not think that I could do it, but at the same time, the whole thing about impossible to possible is to reach beyond your perceived limits and do things that you didn't think were possible. And so I was kind of thrown into that world of doing stuff that you didn't think was possible, setting goals, training towards that goal. And then eventually accomplishing it with the help of a big team behind us, trainers, and also my teammates that were there to support me and that were in the same kind of boat as I was. They weren't accomplished ultra runners either. They had a background in some type of sport, but we all kind of came together and pushed ourselves in that situation. And then, yeah, we eventually completed the, the expedition. I want to ask you real quick about when you, when you lost your identity doing this. I feel like a lot of people that listen to this show or who have been on the show talk about going through that. And it's almost like what they get known for later or the, some of their biggest achievements is not what they were originally passionate about. And they kind of discover a new sport or a new thing they love. And, and that, that is kind of like their identity, like that. And people don't even know about that past identity that, that the person thought was going to be what they'd be known for. What, what were some of those things you think you did well to help you get through that and, and find a new identity and kind of let that chapter close and open up a new chapter? What are some like some pointers you've learned to help folks kind of make that transition? Well, I think for me, it was really just about getting 
really fast into something new and not kind of letting that feeling of being down and not knowing what to do with my life uh, linger any longer. It was really about just setting a new goal for myself. And I think a lot of my life has been around setting goals and working towards them and achieving them eventually with a lot of hard work, sometimes not in a linear uh, way and going through those ups and downs. But yeah, I think basically just setting goals and working towards them, that would be the best pointer that I'd have. It's like not living in the past. I feel like that's maybe where a lot of people go wrong is like, you know, that's that's the only thing I'll ever be great at or I'll ever enjoy or love. And now it's gone. And I'm almost like, you know, I've learned from so many people on the show. It's like, what are the chances you found what you love at 16, 15, 17, 25, forever. You know what I mean? There's that they, you, you just happen to come across something that you were good at and you, you were successful in, but there's probably a million of those out there if you take the time to explore. And sometimes we're forced to explore that because of an injury or because of just not wanting to do it anymore. Sometimes we don't ever get forced that way when we just lose the ability to do something. So it, it, it was really interesting. For me also, I, I kind of figured that my identity is not so much what sports I'm doing or what uh, job I'm, I'm at or what I was studying in school. Like that's not everything that I am. And it's more about personal traits that I uh, come to realize while I'm doing those things that kind of make up what my identity is. And so being very goal oriented also, you know, I think, reflecting back on on all those years before when I was um an athlete well I think I still kind of am an athlete but uh yeah when when I was doing high performance sports I mean I, I always kind of wanted to be something different than the mainstream I always wanted to kind of stand out a little bit although when I was in high school, all I wanted was just to blend in and not be noticed. But at the same time, I always wanted to do really cool stuff and be um, a little bit on the on the outside and do things that nobody was doing. Um, and so I think that that kind of kept going uh, through my life. And that's like the main thing that I guess now I see more as my identity, more than just what I'm doing in that moment. Well, if that's the way you like to operate and the way you like to be, you, you, you've found the right show to be on because that's exactly yeah. <laughs> the community. You're going to fit in here because <laughs> we're all kind of on the outskirts, on the fringe of our communities. We're the crazy ones in our families a lot of time yeah. in our friends group. So that's really cool to hear. That's been like almost intentional. So, so so you, you find ultra marathons and doing these kinds of experiences through getting ready for this trip at the Atacama D- Desert. What did you feel like that filled for you that wasn't there before? Was it the community aspect or just the new environment? The desert's a lot different than, you know, cross-country skiing forever. Are there just a lot more similarities than people realize? Like what, what was it for you that made it so impactful? I think for me, it was just doing something that I didn't know that I could accomplish. And then for that very expedition, it was definitely the community and learning that by myself, I definitely could not at that time could not have gone for, you know, on average a marathon a day for seven consecutive days, but being with a team made it possible. Uh, and, and of course we went, we weren't running those marathons at, at you know, a four hour a marathon or, or anything like that. It was really more of an expedition based marathon. So we took like the whole day to, to run it and we took some walking breaks uh, throughout the day. And it was really more about supporting each other through that. And we all had our low points, um, but we were all together while we were doing it. So I think the sense of community that was built through that expedition was very impactful and kind of the, the staying of together or alone, you can go fast, but together you can go far. Really, you know, I, I learned about that a lot on that expedition. How did the desert treat you? Because you're, you're from a colder environment. You were, came from a skiing background, you know, that's, that's someone who grew up in a hot environment like me. I, I find the cold pretty challenging to deal with. How was the heat for you? 
Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. We went in the spring. So the challenge was from coming from the winter, training throughout the winter, and then going to a really warm environment in the spring. So we weren't there in the highest of heat uh, that the Atacama Desert can have, but it was still very hot during the day. We had to take breaks uh, around lunchtime, just like two to three hour breaks because we couldn't run in that type of heat. And then at night, it was really cold. Like one of the nights we had freezing temperatures. So it was like that variation of temperatures that was a little bit more challenging. Like my body kind of adapted and reacted pretty well. Some of my teammates had a little bit more difficulties with cramps and stuff like that, but we readjusted with hydration, electrolytes and all that. It was a learning curve for the first few days, but then uh, the body adapts. And I think that I have very fortunate to have a body that can handle both really warm desert areas and also the really, really cold temperatures. Which one do you like more? I think the really cold I think yeah, you're... but they, yeah, but they they both uh, provide really interesting challenges. But I think the the cold is my go to. Well, speaking of that, nine years after this trip to uh, Chile, you are getting ready. You know, when you're preparing for this, yeah, I know you did it, but the to cross a portion of Baffin Island. Can you can you tell us a little bit about the island and what you were planning to do? Um, but what what makes this place so special and so unique? Yeah, so Baffin Island is in Nunavut, uh, Canada. It's in the Arctic. It is a very barren land. There's well, there, there's not a lot of life. There are Inuit communities that live on the shores, uh, so close to the to the ocean, and there's polar bears. So we decided. Well, Ray came up with this idea, and we were originally going to cross a section of Baffin Island from Kikiktarjwak to Pangerton through the Palak Valley. Uh, it was supposed to be a 25-day expedition um, on skis, crossing that, uh, that valley from one community to the next. And, and then in the fall of uh, 2022, Ray got diagnosed with uh, cancer. And so we had to readjust our plans. And... So he still wanted to go on the expedition, but we just had to readjust a little bit in terms of what he could handle, considering that he was going to be doing this in the middle of chemotherapy. And so Ray's a badass person. He's absolutely incredible. He had about a 10-day window between chemo treatments that he could go on expedition. So we decided to transform it a little bit and it became a um, snow machine and skiing and trekking expedition. So we took snow machines from Kikiktarjwak over the sea ice up the fjord and then we skied and trekked over the island itself and then uh, we had the snow machines pick us up at the other end and go through the fjord and over the sea ice um, to Pangerton at the end. So it was a seven-day expedition total. Baffin Island seems so far away from yeah. where you live. Does it does it feel like that? Does it feel like just another world or is it just, oh no, just go north a little bit and you'll be there. But, or is it just, it does feel like a far off land for folks in Quebec City? Yes, it's absolutely, it's completely different. I've been fortunate. I've traveled a little bit through different parts of the world and I don't think that I've been as blown away and kind of felt more away from home than I did in my own country going up to Baffin Island. And I, in 2016, I took a year off of school and I went to work in Kujwak, which is a, a small community north of Quebec. It's just subarctic. Even then, it was, you know, so, so far from home. But staying in the same province. So anything that's up north is just incredibly different from what we're used to down here. We call it down south, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very different. The communities are incredible, though. The people there are super welcoming. We've made really great friendships uh, with the people up there. 
the the land itself is just absolutely beautiful, unlike anything that we you can see anywhere else on the planet. It, it seems like I mean I've 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 seen pictures of Baffin Island that look like they're out of like Lord of the Rings or something. It just looks like just a, a setting and a scenery that is fictional. Did it feel like that when you land? Take us take us through that. What was it like to land? Get out get ready and realize I have to I have to cross this island. Like it, I mean, it had to feel intimidating because I'm looking at pictures and there's like a lot of shots of like this horizon of mountains. Was that a setting for you at all? Thinking like, we've got to cross somewhere over there. We landed and it was at night. And, you know, I didn't really have that awe moment of like, oh, we're here and we're actually going to do this because uh, some of our bags didn't make it. Uh, on that on that first flight and so well we thought they didn't make it and so we were at the airport and we were in full uh, problem solving mode uh, because we had that very short window and we couldn't just push back our expedition for a couple of days because we had to to get back Ray had to get back for chemo Uh, Kevin had to get back to his job I had to get back to my job and so you know we didn't have that very long time to just push it push it back and so not having I think we had like three bags that didn't make it one of them was a ski bag and uh, and so we were kind of all stressed we asked okay well is it possible to just like go and have a look in the cargo space of the plane you know there are small planes twin otters and so it was kind of like well we just like go and have a look and just be a hundred percent sure that you didn't forget them on the plane and then so they were nice enough and they they said no no we'll we'll go and we'll have a second look and sure enough the three bags came out and so Jeez. that was a relief but yeah so that that was a little bit of a, a rough start to the whole trip but eventually we got to the little hotel and went straight to bed we were exhausted from the the travel and then the next morning we wake up and the first thing that i can see from the the hotel room the window out there was a big iceberg and with that really cool like pink light from the sun rising pretty memorable moment and that's when I realized like I'm here and uh, we're actually going to do this and feels like we're in the middle of nowhere uh, even though we're in a little community but that's when we kind of realized okay well we've got the whole day to pack and prepare our sleds and then the next day we were leaving. So, yeah. And then they, they told us, you know, the, the only thing that I wanted to do was just put on my skis and ski out to that iceberg. It was so, so impressive and so um, attractive, you know, and, and uh, the people in the community said the only thing that like you should not do is go out to that iceberg because polar bears have been like roaming around it. And uh, if you're going to see a polar bear, it's going to be there. And, you you know, so I was like, OK, well. Maybe I'll just look at the iceberg from a distance then. <laughs> so speaking of that, what what were some of the real dangers? Because, you know, there's always the misconceptions with any adventure, you know, like all oh, sharks in the ocean or alligators or some of those things that get kind of blown out of proportion. What were some of the actual dangers you were concerned about? What Was it polar bears? And, and if so, what did you do? to prepare for that? And also what were some of the other dangers? So for polar bears, it is an actual concern. There's definitely risks. Of course, they're kind of like any animal out there, you know, they're a little bit more scared of you than you are of them. But with polar bears, the reality is that they do see humans as a food source. And so if you come across, they can go into on attack mode and it's not necessarily just going to be a defense mechanism so that it's definitely a concern we had so our group of three kevin ray and i the two guys have their carrying license so their gun permit so we had a gun with us on one of our sleds and it was there in case of a polar bear encounter of course you use flares at first to try to scare it off and that is usually enough. And we also had two Inuit guides there with us to kind of a- accompany us and make sure that everything was 
okay, they were following from a distance and we didn't, we were self-contained and we had everything that we needed on our sleds to be self-sufficient, but they were there sleeping in nearby fishermen cabins. And they, they're the ones who gave us the rides, uh, the snow machine rides to and from the start and end points for the, the ski portion of our expedition. And so they are also the ones that know best about the land. They know, you know, how to track polar bear tracks. And they were there also with, with guns and they know a little bit more than any southerner what to do in case of a polar bear encounter. A southerner like yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <awesome. laughs> exactly. I keep having to, to remember that. That's uh, so. So tell us some some stories from the experience itself. What were some of the things that happened uh, over the seven days? It, it had to have. There had to have been a few setbacks, a few issues, and whatnot. How how was it? Well, first of all, it was cold. <laughs> uh, it, it was. <laughs> Yeah, you prepare mentally, you know that it's going to be cold when you're going to the Arctic, right? But I didn't really know what it would actually feel like. And yeah, it it was way colder than I could have imagined. So like for references, we got, we had a, a very accurate thermometer that they use in the transport of vaccines to monitor the temperatures. And so we were collecting some of that weather data up north to uh, support future impossible to possible youth expedition, uh, kind of developing that educational curriculum. That thermometer read, the coldest it read was uh, minus 49.7 degrees Celsius. So I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but yeah, so cold, definitely cold. I think it's Um, around the same, because I think that's right around when it's similar. It's it's negative uh, 56 Fahrenheit, so Pretty much the same. Unreal. Yeah, at minus 40, I know minus 40 Celsius and minus 40 Fahrenheit are the same. And then they start to change a little bit from that. But yeah, so minus 50 Celsius. And then the very interesting part, the the one that I wasn't really aware of that much was the humidity. And it was a 65% humidity, which is incredible. Like it's so high and to be in that cold of an environment at 65% humidity is just not something that your body can prepare for. What What's the effect with it being cold? Does it just make it more cold or just like a wet cold? Yeah, it's a wet cold. So it's just everything Which gets sounds worse. damp. Yeah, it's definitely worse than like a dry cold. So everything is damp uh, within two days. Our sleeping bags were damp, our base layers were damp or, or yeah, puffy jackets were wet. Everything just becomes wet. How how do you deal with that? Because you can't dry stuff because it just freezes. And even if it were above freezing, it's, it's too humid to dry effectively. Yeah. You just, just deal with it. There's nothing, there's not much that you can do. You just embrace the suck and you just have to, yeah, you just deal with it. You, you know, we had had a change of base layers, but that's pretty much it. We were uh, self-contained. We were carrying our sleds, so there's not that much equipment that we can bring. Uh, we were only going for seven days also, so that's important to, to note that on longer polar expeditions, you know, you'd bring two sleeping bags and, and a lot more equipment and gear. But when you're going for seven days, there's not much that you can't handle for seven days. I mean, it's, there's plenty of time for things to go wrong. <laughs> yeah, what I'm thinking. That's a long yeah. time to be cold. It's, it's a long time, but at the same time, it's, it's not that long. It's not like a month long, you know, you can count down the days and they go by pretty fast. Um, and it's only, it's only seven days you can get through. And that's something that you learn, you know, you can get through pretty much anything for seven days. Yeah, and then uh, on top of that, obviously, it's very windy up there. Um, So one of the days we had, well, during the night, uh, kind of a windstorm picked up, and it was 100 kilometer an hour winds. So all of those um, weather data put together, it kind of comes out to about like, I think it's minus 85 degrees Celsius, like with the wind chill. Um, And then that's not even counting the humidity level. So Anyways, for um, that night that where the wind picked up, the next morning we woke up and the wind was still 
howling. It was, um, it was crazy, crazy winds. And in normal circumstances, we probably could have pushed on. Um, but because of, uh, Ray and his chemotherapy, he's right in the middle of it. Uh, there were certain, um, precautions that we needed to, to take and take, uh, frostbite risk a little bit more seriously. Like Ray could not get frostbite because that becomes like an open wound and, um, subject to infection. He has no antibodies and no immunity system. So, uh, we just couldn't take that risk. And so we stayed in the tent for 40 hours, uh, during that windstorm, just kind of, yeah, sleeping, napping, drinking coffee, telling stories and not being able to, yeah, being wet, not really being able to move because we were, uh, it wasn't a big tent. We were kind of crammed in there, but part of the adventure. Part of the adventure. So, so I was going to ask that, how did this, yeah, because I've seen Ray talk about having cancer and dealing with it and I uh, didn't put it together that this was, he had to do this trip in the middle of all that. What, besides that, were there any other considerations? I mean, just how was his energy level compared to normal? I know he's an absolute animal. Was he, was he just kind of like a normal person with having to deal with cancer? <laughs> well, you know what? He, he's a beast. And like on most days he was ahead of me and just like cracking through and, and I had a hard time keeping up. And so I was like, well, when he gets through this chemo and, and he's back to his normal self, like I'm never going to be able to follow him on, on an expedition because he's just, he's so good. And he just has that mental capacity of going, getting through pretty much anything. So the, the considerations were, yeah, his uh, energy levels, we had a little bit maybe shorter days than uh, he would have on a normal expedition, I guess. But it was more about keeping him healthy. So he couldn't get sick. He couldn't get uh, any infection, couldn't get blisters. He couldn't get frostbite. So it was more kind of dealing with that and uh, making sure that he stayed healthy in that way. Holy cow. And, you know, I'm looking at like the the route you took. It's not, I mean, it's mountainous. In- yeah. Big. Well, we were, we were falling like through the valley. So the, yeah, I do see this valley. Unbelievably beautiful. How many, how many miles or how many kilometers to, in total? I think it was 150 kilometers total Wow. that we did on the ski and trekking part. It's basically a hundred miles. Yeah. So from one community to the next, it's, it's almost like 250 kilometers because we did some of that on the snow machines, which is a whole other adventure in itself. That was definitely, you know, I, I think at some points I, I kind of thought, well, I really would have preferred doing this on skis and, and on foot rather than in the snow machine. So why is that? It, the, the kind of traditional Inuit way of getting around on the land real traditional way is by dog team now with the arrival of snow machines they have in the back of the, those snow machines what's called a hamotic and it's basically a big wooden box to carry gear around and so ray kevin and i we all went got into one of the hamotics we were pulled by the snow machine for uh, those sections so it's a big wooden box we're crammed in there and there's no suspension. We had a very, very thin foam at the bottom. And we got we got hammered in there. It, it was just over every little rock, every little in, indentation in the ice, every little bump. It was just like bam, bam, constantly. It was like every three to five seconds just getting hammered on the, those in that wooden box. Jeez. Yeah. Oh and then gosh. so the 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 last uh leg of the snow snowmobile ride to get back to um Pengerton, where we would fly out of, that took us I think it took us twelve hours uh in the, the snow machine. We had to go over some really sketchy terrain, over some dry rocks with the snow machines. We had to unhook the hamotics and push them through some really tough parts. We had to like, we had to unhook the hamotics and bring 
people up to the top of some of those uh, those mountains and then just kind of like relay. Sometimes they had to use both snow machines to pull one hamatik. So it was just kind of basically going back and forth on like very short periods, like maybe 100, 200 meters. We would push the, the snow machine with the hamatik. We were six of us just pushing that big sled in the back and um, and then having to go back and get the second one. And uh, so it was just nonstop adventure basically for 12 hours and then we had maybe like a three hour part where we were on the sea ice and so we were just riding non-stop but then every little bump in the ice it was just like constantly beating our bodies I thought at one point I was like okay well I'm gonna need like a double hip replacement I probably have a broken rib um the guys in the back so I was like in the front facing the back uh, and I had like more of the impact, but the guys in the back, they were facing the front and they had all of the wind coming on them. And uh, they were like close to hypothermic on that ride. So we uh, we had to wrap them up in a big tarp and, uh, you know, close that tarp over their, their upper bodies and their heads. And uh, so they were basically in this little cocoon. And I was just like, well, I'm never doing that because I'm a little bit claustrophobic and I would have... Yeah, I would have panicked real time. So t- tell me more about, I mean, you're going through this. If you just Google Bath and Island, there are some gorgeous, beautiful mountains that look like nothing else on earth. Flat tops, these jagged peaks. It's 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 there's quite a mixture of shapes of these unbelievable mountains. What was it like to go through that valley underneath? You were going right through the heart of some of the most scenic parts of this whole place to go by them so slowly and, and, and on foot had to be just, just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, we were going through, um, so there's a, a very popular, um, well, not popular is, is a it's relative. very <laughs> relative term. Uh, there's not a lot of people who go up to, to Baffin Island, but the um, the route that most people take would be through the uh, national park, and that's where you've got the really big, high mountains, very impressive peaks that are just like crazy vertical drop. Um, and this time, we did a little bit of a different route. We went uh, through a valley a little bit south of there, and. Uh, it was a route that was suggested to us by our Inuit friends. Um, it's a valley that is commonly used for by the Inuit people for fishing and hunting and uh, also very beautiful. We just didn't get the absolute huge mountains on, on both sides. Um, but just being in that environment of that, that crazy, um, it was, it was also very, very beautiful valley. Um, and then, you know, you wake up in the morning and you see the sunrise. Um, you go out for to the bathroom and uh, you've got that, that crazy light that's throughout the day because it's not very, um, like we had like six hours of daylight uh, because we were there in the middle of February. And... Um, yeah, just seeing that light over the mountains is, was very, very special. Not something that you can see anywhere else in the world. Um, for that that crazy, beautiful, mountainous valley that you're talking about that you would typically see when you're Googling Baffin Island, that we are taking clients on a trip there through the Capic One Expedition Company um, in the fall. So we're going in September and uh, bringing clients there. So cool. So, so tell us a little bit about, you, you wrapped this adventure up. How did you, did you feel like y'all accomplished what you set out to do? I know there was some data tracking involved. Tell us a little bit about that and also kind of the sense of accomplishment at the end. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Yeah, so the, the goal of this expedition was kind of multi-factor. It was, um, for me, it was a, a personal goal of going to do one of my uh, 
first polar expeditions. Um, and then it was also getting Ray through um, a very important expedition in his life, going through that uh, chemotherapy and kind of just being there for him, being there for my friend and supporting him in his uh, goal. And uh, it was also about collecting some weather data to support the uh, impossible to possible youth expedition that's coming up in June. They're going up to um, Nunavut again. They're going to uh, kind of the same spots where we were. And so they'll be able for the educational purposes, they'll be able to compare notes of what they're seeing in June um, compared to what we experienced in uh, February. And uh, so the, the sense of accomplishment at the end, first of all, I was just very happy that Ray was safe and healthy and all was good. Um, and then, yeah, I was kind of realizing that what I was talking about earlier of, of well, you can pretty much get through anything for seven days. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish really incredible things if you set a goal for yourself and just work towards that, even accomplishing the things that you didn't think were possible before, kind of surviving that, those crazy weather systems and that, that crazy cold. I think I'm still kind of unthawing from that <laughs> expedition. Yeah, you know, four months later. Three months later, yeah. So they'll stop. with a trip with a trip to Costa Rica in the middle, like I'm still <laughs> that'll thaw you out. Yeah, well, not not a hundred percent. I'm still um, no, I'm I'm just kidding. But yeah, it was just realizing that. I think for me, it was just realizing that this was kind of an introduction to polar expeditions, and there'll definitely be more in the future. Valerie, let me ask you this. Are, are you a full-time adventure athlete? No, I do this very recreationally and very part-time. I have a full-time job. I'm an air traffic controller at the Quebec City Airport. And that takes up most of my time. Very busy. I don't have that much time to train even or the mental space uh, to train. Because the, I think the, the job has just been very mentally demanding and draining sometimes. So yeah, I try to work the training into my busy schedule as much as I, as much as I can. And I organize my life around my vacation time and doing these projects uh, just during my vacation time that I get off of work. Oh, the reason I ask is, is, is I knew you have a job and you have a, a career that you takes up your time, but you're still able to make these things happen. And, I, and I'm sure there's plenty of people that have a job that isn't either, maybe they don't like, or maybe it's not exciting. It's, honestly, an air traffic controller sounds like it's pretty stressful and ex can be exciting or at least like, you know, high energy in the sense of like navigating everyone and logistics and whatnot but you're not doing this. This isn't all you do. You, you've got so much going on and you're able to fit it in. We love to promote on this show the fact that, you know, people feel like you have to be a raise Ahab to, to be an adventurer, to inspire other people, but that's not the case. Most of us will have some sort of levels of responsibility that we have to take care of in order to allow the time and freedom to do these kinds of experiences. Can I, can I ask you this? I'm sure you have tons of coworkers that aren't doing tons of stuff on the side. What, what do your coworkers think about what you do? Do you talk about it at work or are you open about, Hey, I just got back from Baffin Island or is it a little keep secret you keep to yourself? Oh, uh, no, no. I'm, I'm very open about it. We are a very small group of people as well. We're like, I think we're 14 at the tower. Uh, and so we all know everything about everyone's life and everything <laughs> that's going on. Um, we have a lot of time to talk amongst ourselves as well. So yeah, any little new and exciting thing that's happening in uh, one of our lives becomes the main topic of, of conversation for that time. And so we went over and over and over my training for the expedition. And the uh, yeah, when I came back, the expedition itself, uh, definitely mixed reactions. Some 
you know, when I talk about things that I do, I get kind of three main reactions. I get the, oh, cool, and then move on. And so that's when I know that it's like, well, they just don't get it or they don't understand it. And that's fine. It just, yeah, it didn't register. And then I'll get the, you're crazy, which I've learned to embrace. I don't think that I'm actually crazy. I just think I'm like a normal person just doing really cool stuff. And then you know, the the third reaction is just people who are really into it and want to know uh, more about it. And yeah, want to know like what motivates me and the logistics of it. And people that are genuinely curious about how in the what? Yeah. Maybe they never plan to do it, but it registers. Like that, that's definitely, that's a great way to put it. Those three reactions are pretty much what you get. At work, I'll get those three reactions, right? And, but most, most of my coworkers are really supportive and all about, you know, getting out there and su- like supporting me in my adventure, adventurous lifestyle when I'm not at work. That's, yeah. that's exciting. And they know that like I, I bike commute to work sometimes when the, the shift works. Like if it's like if I'm working at midday shift, then I'll bike commute to work, um, take some of my rest time during a shift to go to the gym and train a little bit. We're a few of us that, that do that. But yeah, so it, I tried to also promote my coworkers and like get them to get outside and move a little bit more and, and go for a walk if, if, it's, uh, if that's what they want to do or train for that half marathon that they're doing and get our, all, of, all of our staff into, into shape. There we yeah. go. I love it. So what is next? I don't, you know, I feel like adventurers feel pressure to have what's next. And sometimes you need time to, for things to, to, for inspiration, or you just, you're, you're, you're good for now. You know, sometimes I just don't have anything on the horizon just cause I'm, I'm in a good place and I don't feel like I need something and a big adventure that is. How about you? Where are you at with that process? And also where can folks follow you, find out more about you, read more about this adventure and whatnot? Yeah, I'm definitely the kind of person who likes to um, kind of let the adventures come to me more than just like speaking adventures all the time. And, and in terms of like what's next, I don't have a list of things that I absolutely want to do and, and things that are coming up in the next year or five years or like a bucket list. I kind of just go with whatever inspiration of the moment is and I wait for a project that will be meaningful and that I really want to get behind and and actually do. I'm thinking about this is not 100% sure, but I'm thinking about uh, I've got a two week vacation in June that I'll probably go out to the uh, East Coast Trail and kind of fast pack that uh, East Coast Trail in uh, Newfoundland. Wow. Yeah, I just kind of thought of it randomly I've heard about it for a couple of years and then I was like well I've got two weeks off let's try and and see if I can fit that in I'm not sure that I'll be able to do the whole trail but yeah we'll see but I'm kind of looking looking into organizing that for myself in mid-June and then um, in September going back to uh, Baffin Island to guide some clients with the uh, Capricorn Expedition Company with Ray. So you get to put these skills to use with, with guiding a few times a year with Ray. That's, that's awesome. I feel like that's such a great balance to be able to, you know, not some, sometimes people try too hard to make adventure pay the bills. And I think it can ruin it for folks, but if you keep it fun, keep it something on the side, there's always something to look forward to. And frankly, me, if I, if I guide a couple trips a year, a handful, I feel I'm, I'm, di- I'm tired. Yeah. You know, like it's a lot of work leading up. It's a stressful and a lot of work doing the trips. And then the back end, you get to enjoy it, go through all the pictures, share the experience with everybody and, and kind of build up to the next one. I, I feel like it's a good rhythm personally. So I don't know. Everybody's got to find that rhythm for themselves. That's exciting. A lot of exciting stuff happened. Yeah, happening. Absolutely. And, and making the most of your two weeks sounds uh that'd be that'd be incredible. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> well, I'm I'm lucky enough to have like a, a like two weeks off during the during the year, so I can probably do like maybe three adventures a year if I'm lucky. 
three big adventures. That's plenty of stories, lots of yeah. memories. And sometimes, sometimes they can be small too. And I'm fine with that. They can just be like backyard adventures. And that's, that's also really good. We, we talk about that a lot on the show too. That that's most of my adventures right now, weekends. And I'll be honest, they're very satisfying. It's like, instead of eating a huge meal, it's like having a really good appetizer. It's still delicious and great and, and, and is doing the same thing nutritionally for your thirst for adventure, hunger for adventure, but you just, you can do them more frequently sometimes. So I love it. Well, Valerie, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about this awesome adventure, adding to the Canadian representation here with Ray's Ahab. We've had a lot of folks in that kind of world beyond. And so it's awesome to keep connecting the dots with impossible to possible and everything y'all are doing uh, in that area. It's so exciting. Lo- love the work y'all do. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me and probably uh, check out the Capic One uh, expeditions. And if you're uh, looking to, to get into really remote, remote parts of the planet that Ray and myself have explored and you want to just have a little taste of that, also sell really great coffee on that That's on that right. website. Yeah, <laughs> got a, hopefully a decent amount of uh, grit and bitterness, like a re- like yes. a real adventure. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, awesome. Well, well, we'll we'll include all that. And thank you so much again. Have a great day, and uh, thanks for being an inspiration. Thank you. First of all. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>